If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to Mark chapter 3. Mark is sandwiched between Matthew and Luke. Needed some help figuring that out there. <clears throat> On my Bible, you need to go to page 1360. If you need a page number to go to, I'm just trying to help you out, folks. That's all. That's all. <clears throat> Always do what I can to help a brother out. Today, I want to share a message with you that I've entitled Engaging Faith. But I want to begin by piggybacking off of some of what we have discussed in our, our Wednesday night stuff. Um, no, we're not already to the Gospels on Wednesday night. We're reading through the Bible uh, through a year and teaching through what we've read in the previous week. We're not to the Gospels, but we've learned some things over the course of this year on Wednesday nights that I think really helped to build in where we're at today, okay? Um, it's laid some significant groundwork in, in how we've got a system that God has used in the Bible to correct us when we've become an error. And there's a consistent common place that you see um, errors occurring in, in people, in us, as we follow God and as we love Jesus and, and humanity, and it's kind of been there the whole time. Because, see, if you go back to the book of Genesis, right, in the book of Genesis, you've got some pretty cool stuff that happens. God created the perfect world. It's not the perfect world anymore, is it? God created the perfect environment. It's not the perfect environment anymore. In, in fact... The perfect environment got ruined so, so much so that we have to endure rain these days. Like back then, everything was just lush. The Bible says that it watered itself, basically. Uh, it was just a perfect greenhouse canopy, and now we, like, I, I, don't, I don't mind the rain because we need it, right? But wouldn't it be awesome if everything was like the perfect golf course, lush and green and well-watered and taken care of? And that, that's what they lived in, right? It was amazing. So he created the perfect world and the perfect environment. And then it was the perfect animals, right? You, you never read of, of animals attacking people or, or you never read of animals doing things that they shouldn't have done or crazy stuff, right? So it was perfect world, perfect environment, perfect animals. And then to cap it off, God, God created the most perfect of all of his creations, and that was man and woman. And how many of you know it, that's been ruined too? I looked in the mirror this morning. Let me tell you, that's been ruined. It wasn't perfect at all. It's, it's not, it's not, okay? So it's, it's not. So we've had this fall that's happened, and everything was perfect until the sneaky serpent made his way in, right? And we know that it was Satan because in Genesis, he's referred to as a serpent, and in Revelation, uh, Satan is also referred to as the serpent. And we can get in all kinds of theories of what that is, and it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, Satan introduced a common uh, uh, deception that he's still using today. A common way to get people to think about it that's got them messed up today. He convinced us that we would make a better Lord of our lives than God ever could. He's convinced, that's what, what he convinced Eve, right? Did God really say, if you eat from this, you'll be like God? And so ever since then, we've been trying to be like God. We think we would make a better Lord of our lives, a better ruler of ourselves, and that we can decide what's good, and, and we've deviated from what Scripture has taught us. It's a cycle that has been repeated over and over and over and over again all throughout Scripture, right? Think back to the book, even in Genesis, to the Tower of Babel. When they go to build the Tower of Babel, what's the point? They're going to build a tower to the heavens to be like who? God. Because they don't need God anymore. 
Common, common theme, right? Uh, if you look in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel, they're waiting on Moses to come back off of the mountain. God has called them all there at the mountainside. Moses goes up and he's on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And in those 40 days, after literally they saw the mountain shake, they saw the fire and the smoke, and they saw the presence of God come down in an amazing way, right? They go back and they're like, hey, listen, Moses, your servant is probably dead. Hey, Aaron, we know what to do. We know how to, how to shape a God after our, ourselves. Why don't we give you our gold and you can make us a golden calf? We, we don't need God. Moses obviously is not coming back. He's dead and gone or ran off because he got scared on the mountain too and went to the wrong side. Who knows? However, we don't need that anymore. We, we, can, we can take care of ourselves. If you look at the book of Judges, over and over and over and, and over and over again, you've got the same cycle of, we, we can do it ourselves. We know how to handle it. We don't, we don't need God. Oh, great, we come running back to God, and then, oh, we don't need God, and it's just this perpetual cycle that happens. The, the, the issue that we're, we're going to be looking at is we get good at dealing with a symptom. I need to deal with this right here, or, or a, ser a series of symptoms that produce problems in our lives, but we never deal with the system that supports the symptoms return. We never deal with the system. There's a sinful system that creeps into our lives over and over again. We're good at dealing with the symptom. Let me, let me put it into a, a, an everyday terminology for you, okay? Imagine if you got constantly, um, about every three months, you have this bill in your life that comes up that you don't have the money to pay anymore because the previous month you spent too much and the previous month you spent too much and the previous month you spent too much, but in different areas. So now you get to the third month and you don't have the money to pay for one bill. Well, there's a system of spending that creates this symptom that keeps arising. And so what do we do? We run out and we sell something to get enough money to pay for this one particular problem, not realizing there's a whole system of spending that needs to be corrected. Really, really simple, easy way to understand it. We've got to deal with the system in order for the symptoms to not continue to be there. Now, a lot of times we treat faith the same way. We don't realize it, but we do. We treat faith the same way. We use it like a hammer in the whack-a-mole games that you played with your kids, right? All of a sudden, the mole pops up, and what do we do? We grab the mallet of faith and start hammering that one problem until it goes away, and then up, up comes another one, and what do we do? We start hitting that one until finally the game is over and we feel like, okay, good. We finally got through that. But we never deal with the systems that get us there. That's what we're going to be looking at today when we talk about how to engage your faith and why it's important to deal with a system, not just a symptom. So let's look at our text here in Mark chapter 3, 1 through 5. It says, now, he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there with a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they, talking about the Pharisees, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. He told the man with the paralyzed hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow in the, at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. As we dig into this passage in, in our, our, our message today, there's a couple of things that we're going to notice. Number one, Jesus has always had a ministry that was whatever it needed to be. 
Sometimes his ministry was a ministry of comfort. Sometimes his ministry was a ministry of confrontation. I've had moments in my life I needed Jesus to confront me, amen? I've had moments I needed Jesus to come for me. That's what Jesus is. Whatever you needed in the moment, that's who he was. If you were in pain, he was healing. If you had sorrow, he was peace. If you had sin, he was conviction. If you had dysfunction or, or uh, complacency, then he was your confrontation. He's not going to leave you alone. He's never going to leave me alone, amen? He'll meet us where we are, but he never leaves us there. He's always involved in our lives, shaping us every day, every way, more and more into his image, amen? If we're the same today as we were five years ago, I can promise you who's moved. And it wasn't Jesus. I remember in Clinton growing up, one of the, one of the baseball coaches who would help out with um, baseball stuff, and he, he was a retired coach, and he would show up, and he drove this old, old, old truck, um, uh, like, you know, like a 1985 model. It was an, it was an old, old Ford. And he told us a story one time about his wife, and I'm sure we've all heard the story related in different ways, but he told this story. At one time, he and his wife were on a road trip, and she said, do you remember, sweetheart, when we used to sit right next to each other? I mean, we were dating, and we'd be going somewhere, and we, we were inseparable. Even in the truck, we'd be driving even just to the store. And you just, we were inseparable. What happened to us? And he looked at her and said, well, sweetheart, I'm in the same seat I've been the whole time. I'm not the one that moved. Sometimes we find ourselves in that same situation. If we're still the same, we, we, there's got to be some growth. There's got to be something that's happening in our lives. See, in this story that we're talking about that we just read, Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders of the day, specifically about the Sabbath. Now, he was picking a fight for sure, okay? Just, I want to understand that as we go in. He was picking a fight. He was doing it on purpose. He was going to comfort one and confront the others in this whole story. He was going to do what they considered work, on a day they were not supposed to work so that he could demonstrate that their system didn't work. That's the whole point of what he's doing here. They had taken something that was supposed to be a gift from God in the Sabbath, and they had uh, uh, supposed to be a gift that would restore and renew and revive them, and they had abused it and perverted it so that now it was a burden that they had to bear on a daily basis instead. Totally missing the point of what this was for. And Jesus says the, the, the Sabbath is, is uh, for the man, not man for the Sabbath. It's intended to revive and renew and restore. Again, this goes back to, to the, the principles in Genesis that if you do it God's way, it works. And if you do it your way, it will never work. I found this to be true in my life. If you haven't found it to be true in your life yet, try it. Try doing it God's way. Try, pick an area and say, I'm going to do it exactly what the Bible says in this time, and watch what God does in that area of your life. I promise it'll flourish. Because when it comes to Sabbath, a lot of times we don't like the Sabbath. We're Westerners, right? We're Americans. We don't need a day of Sabbath. We're going to work seven days a week, bless God, just to prove that we can. But the Bible says we need a day of rest. I need a day of rest. Do you need a day of rest? We all do. We, we need that moment where we can re renew and restore. We need a day that we're no longer working. We cease from our labors. In, in Genesis, when God instituted the Sabbath, what they found out is, hey, I can accomplish more in six days with God's blessing because I did it his way than I can in seven doing it my way. 
we got to trust that God's way is right. Don't pervert God's blessings and misuse them in ways that they were never intended to be used. So here in this story, what's happening is Jesus is instituting a functional faith in a dysfunctional system. It's a functional faith that's being infused into this dysfunctional system in order to fix both. He's trying to fix both of them. He's not just trying to heal the man. He's not just trying to deal with the system that, that created this issue we're in. He's trying to deal with both of them, and he is able to do that. This passage is more than about healing or demonstrating that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, though he can and he is. It was more than that. Uh, it was about a misappropriation of faith and helping people get past it. How often uh, have, have we used the term faith? How often does that get thrown around today? It's all the time, right? It's like every, it's almost a meaningless term anymore in our society. It's almost as bad as love. Sometimes we use love way too often, right? Especially when somebody says, I just love Taco Bell. No, you don't. No, no, you don't. Nobody loves Taco Bell. Unless you own their stock and you're making a ton of money from it, no, you don't. No, mm -mm. You can love Mac, never mind. We'll not go there. Sorry. Faith gets to be the same way, right? When we say this, we took a step of blind faith, or that person took a step of blind faith. It's, it's almost like we're calling them an idiot, right? It was a step of blind faith. They didn't know what was the other side, had no clue, hadn't thought about it. It was just a blind, no, no. Some, we, we might say a person has found faith, they've come to faith, or they've lost faith. Those are terms that we would use, right? Uh, we might encourage someone to keep the faith. Might say that a person has great faith. I've heard that referred to people, right? Man, that's a man of great faith. I've heard people say, well, it's a faith-based organization. We throw faith around like it's an everyday word. Like, hey, what are you going to have for dinner? Chicken. What are you going to have for dinner? Faith. You know, when people talk about, well, they're, they're people of faith, as though that were an ethnicity that you could be, right? Well, well what ethnicity are you? Black? Are you white? Are you Hispanic? Are you faith? Uh, or, or we talk about it in political parties, right? What party do you belong to? A Dem Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Independence or Tea Party or, or Green Party or Faith Party? It doesn't work that way, right? Faith isn't that way. It's not what it's supposed to be. Faith is not meant to be a, a mere formality or an institution. Faith is supposed to be more than a feeling. It's supposed to be more than a formula, if we can boil it down to a formula that we can make sense out of, it's probably not faith to begin with, amen? If we can boil it down to this is the way it has to be, and if you do this step, these seven steps, it's probably not something that we're doing in faith because you don't need faith to deal with things that you can explain. I don't, I don't need faith to tell you that if I plug a, a, a switch or an extension cord into an outlet, it's going to have power. What I need faith is to understand that when I plug it in, there's a power source being sent to it. That's where faith comes in. I can explain how to get there, but I can't explain everything on the other side of it. We've got to take a step of faith in this and trust that God's going to do it. We need faith for the things that our mind cannot conceive and our eyes cannot perceive. So what is faith? If we're going to, if we're going to really deal with this, what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 explains it, right? It says that now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. 
the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If I were to ask you, if I were to take a survey and ask you, what is the opposite of good? Most of you would say bad, right? Most people, that would be their response. Or what is the opposite of, of light? Most would respond dark. Common thoughts. If I were to ask you, what is the opposite of faith? Many would say fear or doubt. But I want to propose a third option for you. Because, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Most people in churches tend to believe that if we don't have, they tend to believe if we don't have faith if we allow any room for doubt. Most people believe that. But Anne Lamott is quoted to say this, that the opposite of faith is certainty. You can tell when you've created God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do. Let that sink in. The opposite of faith is certainty. There are a lot of things I'm not certain about in life. There are a lot of things that I'm not certain about when it comes to things of faith, uh, uh, things in Scripture. There there are things I am certain about. that Jesus is the Son of God. There are some things that we don't have to to quibble over. But then there are things that I'm like, "Ah, I'm not sure how God's going to work that out. Kind of like, is he going to come pre, mid, or post-trib? I don't know. The reason I don't know is because the Bible doesn't say it's going to be exactly this one. I can take you to scriptures that point to all three. The point I'm trying to make here is that we don't, the, the opposite of faith is when we get to this place that we've got it all figured out and we don't do anything that requires God's help. That's when we're living a life that have, doesn't have any room for faith. We quit stretching ourselves because we're comfortable. We quit trying to do and see God do something different in us because we're okay with where we're at. We don't move into new territories that require God to do something that leaves room for doubt. I've never taken a step of faith that there wasn't doubt on the other side of it. Can can we comprehend that? Because when I take a step of faith, that's taking an uncertain step that if God doesn't do it, I have no idea how these other things are going to work out. When we took a step of faith in the adoption process, it was a huge step of faith. You know why? Because there was a huge price tag to that step of faith. On the other side of that, God proved himself, but there was a ton of doubt and uncertainty in there. So when we take a step of faith, it doesn't mean that there's no room for doubt. It absolutely leaves room for doubt. But when we take that step, we're relying on God that if you don't do it, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know how this is going to work out. When we take a step of faith uh, in our missions commitments, God, I'm going to take this step of faith. I believe that you are in this, and I'm going to trust that you're going to help me. It's a step of faith, but there's doubt. I don't know how God's going to provide. But I'm trusting that he's going to on the other side of it. So we have to get past the idea that I have, to, I have to feel faith in order to operate in it. That I have to have the Holy Ghost goosebumps to feel like I'm stepping out of faith. It doesn't always work that way. Because faith doesn't mean that the, the rain is not going to happen. Faith doesn't mean that the wind isn't going to blow. Faith does not mean that the waves are not going to crash into the side of the boat that you're on. Faith means I know in whom I have believed because he's in the boat with me. Faith means I can trust him because of who is in it with me. I have a faith that works, amen? I don't have a faith that's just a a thought process, just an idea. I have a faith that works. It works in the face of fear and doubt in spite of the winds and the waves. I've got a faith that works because of who I have believed 
in. So what is faith for? If we're going to engage it in our life, what's it for? What is faith for? Well, if I were to go to a gym, and that's a big, huge, fat if, a good trainer is going to identify a couple of things right up front. He is going to want to know, what is your objective? Do you want to get in shape so you could have a beach bod for one week on vacation? Or do you want this to be a lifestyle? Faith is a lifestyle. It's not a one-week moment when crisis happens. It's a meant to be a lifestyle, amen? Every day we live in it. Every day we're working it out. Faith is a lifestyle. Too many, let's be honest, too many of us have these false objectives of faith that is exclusive and not inclusive. This is what happens when churches become more concerned with making sure that God is moving correctly than being involved with God moving at all. It's easy to tell when a church is not on mission because we become inwardly focused and we're worried about what, what I want and what my needs are. A church that's on mission is outwardly focused, whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus. And when people come in, we love them and we accept them. And I'm patting you on the back because this is who we as a church family are. We are inclusive. We're not exclusive. We want everybody to be a part of it. Whether you're white, brown, black, purple, yellow, green with polka dots, it doesn't matter. We want everyone to come to know Jesus regardless of that. Amen. That's who we are as a family. So the day that Jesus walks into the synagogue, it's a pretty amazing day, right? He walks into the synagogue, and he realizes that there was a man who was unable to reach out his hand. But there was also a group that was unwilling to reach out. And friends, I don't know which one's worse, being unable to or being unwilling to. Where are we at? Where are you at? Are you unable or are you unwilling? Jesus walks in and says, guys, listen, this isn't working. That's what he says. This this isn't working. You got this system going and it's not working. It's broken. He begins to identify their false objectives of faith because it's all about them, right? Their prayers of faith were only going to benefit themselves. This is when we start to get inward, right? We're not engaging our faith in a, a, a biblical way when it's all about me, when it's about my kids and my job and my promotion, my well-being, my preferred presidential candidate. See what I did? I just slipped that right in there, right? It's about me and what I want. We've got to get past that. And God, what is it that you want? These type of people that operate this way, They're only worried about faith for their needs. They've never asked God to do something that might make them a little less convenient. Have we ever prayed for God to bless somebody that might actually not work in our benefit? My prayer for every one of you is God would bless you immensely. And if God blessed you immensely and you decided to move to the beach, just leave a room open for me, right? I want God to bless you, whether it does anything for me or not. I want God's blessing in your life in every way. I want the prayer of faith to work. I want the prayer. Sometimes the prayer of faith means they get promoted to heaven and don't stay here with us. That's not to my benefit. That's not convenient for me. We've got to pray in alignment with what God wants. So we step back and we, again, realize that this all happens on the Sabbath. We said earlier Jesus was picking a fight. And this is going to hit home for us in just a minute, so hang with me. He was picking a fight. You know why I know he was picking a fight? Because he could have healed this guy on Monday. He could have healed the guy on Thursday. Why the Sabbath? Why the Sabbath? 
It's on this occasion that he chooses to heal this man and to make a difference. This wasn't a life-threatening issue. Having a, a paralyzed hand, not a life-threatening issue at all. It, it's, it's not like the guy couldn't function in society at all with, with his dysfunction that's there. He was still able to do that. He had had this condition for some time. They all knew who he was. They weren't surprised. In fact, they knew he would be there. Hey, this guy's going to be there. Let's see if we can trap him. And then if we were to read on, verse 6 says they go out and they begin to plot his overthrow. They begin to plot against him with the Herodians. They knew this was going to be the case. This is the day he chose. He chose that day specifically uh, that you weren't supposed to do any work, to do work, to demonstrate their system didn't work, right? He steps back into that same thing. This isolated situation gives us the opportunity to demonstrate the larger problem that was there. Too often, let's be honest, we have this situational view of God, right? What did God do in this situation in this moment rather than this global worldview of God working through the whole thing? We want God to deal with this situation at this moment, but God's wanting to deal with the systems that produce the situations to begin with. God wants to shift us. He wants to change us so that the situation is under control and not just another one coming up. He wants to get us to the place that we've addressed the broken system to begin with. He wants to deal with the system, not just the situations that we have. So again, at this time, Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to heal this guy. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to change what they're dealing with. And in this story, the Bible shows us two different situations present. One is the man with the shriveled hand, and the other were the people that verse 5 says that Jesus looked around at them and with anger and sorrow, he had sorrow at the hardness of their heart. I'm not sure which is worse, a shriveled hand or a shriveled heart. A heart that says it doesn't matter. The truth is, the condition of the man's hand was just a reflection of the people's hearts around him. It was just a reflection of what was already there. And that's what Jesus was trying to deal with. The symptom was a reflection of the system, and Jesus came to confront both of them and to bring comfort through that. So he tells this guy to stand up. He says, hey, you men, stand up right here. Stand up in front of all of us. Um, I I have a a cousin who actually has this issue. He was involved in in a four-wheeler accident, and his left hand, I'm sorry, his right hand is, is paralyzed. He doesn't have full motor use of it. And every time I see my cousin, hey, what's up? I go to shake his hand, and he gives me his good hand. He hides the one that's shriveled, right? So probably Jesus tells him to stand up, and like my cousin, this guy probably would have put his hand in his pocket. If he's anything at all like us, that's what he does. But Jesus tells him, I want to see your hand, right? The Bible says that it was a hand, not hands. So he had one good hand. If this guy was anything like us, he would have, when Jesus said, stretch out your hand, he would have given him the good hand. We do that, right? I don't know about you, but I do. I'm going to be honest and tell off on myself. I'm good at putting my, I want to be good at putting my best foot forward. So what do we do? We, Jesus calls us in, he's wanting to bring healing, and we give him our good hand while we've got our other one in our pocket. And Jesus says, no, 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 not, not that hand. Not the good one, not the one that's working. That's not the hand that I'm after. God didn't bring us here today so that we could show off the parts of our lives that are working. He brought us here today so that he could heal the parts of our life that are not. 
That's what he's doing. Again, look at verse 5. It says he looks at them and he sees their hardened hearts, hearts that have lost the ability to be compassionate, hearts that can only think of themselves, that can only think of man-made rules and regulations, can only think of what is wrong, what they could correct. It says that Jesus looked around at them with sorrow. His, Jesus was sad for them. Another translation says that he was deeply distressed because their hearts were stubborn and hardened at what he was trying to do. They didn't care about the man's issues. They just wanted to catch him doing wrong. So it says that Jesus told him to stretch. Uh, told, uh, the, the verse goes on, if we were to think of it logically, it would be that Jesus healed him and he stretched out his hand, right? That's what would logically make sense. The healing happens and then you stretch out and do the thing, right? That's not how faith works. Faith has a little bit of a different order. Faith... Faith commands us to do what we cannot do. If we're doing something that's easy for us to do, it didn't take faith to do it. Faith commands us to do what we can't. Faith will command us to do what we've convinced ourselves we could never, ever touch. Faith will fly in the opposite direction of the narrative of our lives to this point so that we can see faith proven out on the other side. You know what faith does? Faith will call you a conqueror when all you've ever felt like was a quitter. Faith will say that you are the head when all you've ever thought of yourself as is the tail. Faith will tell you that you are whole when you have only ever seen broken. Faith will tell you that you are complete when you have only ever seen struggle and issue. Faith will tell you you are blessed when you only feel like you have ever had lack in your life. That's what faith does. Faith tells you to stretch out your hand that you always have hidden in your pocket so that nobody would ever notice. Now, I think it's significant that Jesus chooses to heal a guy with a paralyzed hand and not a fully paralytic man coming in on a cot. The reason is because he does that. He heals the paralytic man. He heals the blind. He heals all the things that everyone can easily see. I think it's significant that he chooses someone with a dysfunction they could easily hide. Because we all struggle, let's be honest, we probably all have some kind of dysfunction that's easy to hide. We all, all have that. We all, uh, we all know we can get by with one hand, if you will. Maybe you'd say nobody knows about your temper except your wife. Nobody knows about your spending habits except your husband and it's tearing your marriage apart. Nobody knows about your eating disorder, and you keep telling yourself that it's going to be fine. I can get by with it. It's no big issue. And Jesus is looking at you, and he's saying, hey, give me your hand. No, 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 not the good one, the one that's paralyzed, the one that's shriveled, the one that isn't working. I want to heal you on the other hand. So he has him stand before everybody, and he stretches out his hand, and he was restored. Now, let's be honest. I, I want God to restore me before I ever reach out. I want God to restore me before I ever respond in faith. I want God's provision to be there before I ever write the check. I want God to do what only God can do before I ever do my part. That's what, what we in human nature want, right? But faith's order is to respond and then be restored. It says that he stretched out his hand and he was healed. He stretched it out. Today, I believe God is stretching some of you. I believe he's trying to get you to see that it's only when you reach out that you will find healing. It's only when you reach out and do what he says that it will. It's only when we do it his way. I, I, I sometimes get afraid if I do it his way, I'm going to look like a fool. 
Nobody likes to look like an idiot, right? I don't. I don't. Sometimes I worry and think, well, if I do it that way, God, are you really going to do it God's way anyway? Do it God's way anyway. You can never go wrong doing it God's way. He's stretching us today. Give him a chance. So today, if that's you, if you find yourself like the man in, in Mark chapter 3, like the man with the shriveled, withered hand, and you're saying, I need Jesus to heal me, but I don't want any, anyone to know I've got this issue, then today's for you. Today's the day that you can stretch out and trust that in faith he's going to meet you right where you're at. Today's the day that we can see that and we can come to him and respond because there is no greater name than the name of Jesus, amen? What he did in Mark 3, he'll do today. Either the Bible is true or it's not. Hebrews 13, 6, that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did then, he'll do today. What he did he, for, for the, the, this man, he can do in your life. What do you need him to do? Every head bowed and every eye closed. <clears throat> if today you're ready to stretch out your hand and receive salvation, we never pass up an opportunity for people to come to know Jesus. If you're ready to reach out your hand and come to know him, would you slip up a hand where you're at? Reach it out, okay? Who else? Who else? Come on, be honest. We're going to pause right here. We're all going to pray this prayer because we all need it, right? So everybody repeat after me, please. Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sins. I ask you to make me whole. I ask you to do what only you can do. And that save me, forgive me, and restore me. Today I surrender my life to you. Knowing that you can and will save me from now on. I trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here's where the rubber meets the road for us as a church family. Because I bet if we would get honest, there would be a lot of hands go up and say, I have a dysfunction I'm hiding. And today I want to reach out my hand. So one more time with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If that's you, would you slip up a hand? Okay, who else? You, you're high, you've got a dysfunction that's easy to hide and you're not sure you want everybody to know. Okay, who else? Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we say, Jesus, today, I need you. I need you to do it in my heart. I need you to do it in my life. I need your help. I need you to do what only you can do. If you would all across the room, stand right there where you're at to your feet. Our elders and prayer team are gonna to begin to make their way down around these altars. And friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you put it into action. Today, Jesus, I'm reaching out my hand, trusting that you will restore me, trusting you'll revive me. And so as our, our elders and prayer team begin to come, if you raised your hand or you need prayer for any reason at all, we wanna invite you now. They're gonna to begin to sing because there's no other name besides Jesus that this can happen, amen? It's a wonderful name. And as they worship and as, as they lead us in this song, uh, if you raised your hand or you should have, come on down. We want to pray with you. We want to agree with you for God to do what only God can do. Amen? Come on, as they're coming, let's just begin to worship.